Let me start off this week by saying that I am new to this. I think I've done a pretty good job pretending I know what I'm doing, or maybe I haven't, but please, I need your feedback. If you're listening on Apple, please write a review. If you don't like what you hear, maybe don't write a review and just DM me on Instagram. But overall, my point is that I'm still learning, and hopefully I don't make super big mistakes, but I'm likely to make a few small ones. I'm trying to get better, and chances are you're able to see a quality difference even between my first episode and now. That I'm happy about. Not necessarily where I am, but the progress I've already made and continue to make. Thanks for joining me on the journey. Hello everyone, and welcome to First Line. My name is Aubrey Ann Jackson, and I'm your host. I am a third-year student doctor attending osteopathic medical school. Here to bridge the gap between sophisticated doctor talk and oversimplified patient education to bring listeners of all backgrounds together to discuss whole body health and wellness. Through an osteopathic lens, we'll cover tangible ways to improve your health, hot topics in healthcare, the journey to becoming a physician, mental health, relationships, and even philosophy, all while holistically addressing the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. can be listened to on Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and now Stitcher. You probably have a good idea about what personality is, what makes you unique from other people, how you interact with others, how you see the world, whether you're introverted or extroverted, what your Myers-Briggs personality type is, maybe even what your Enneagram type is. But today we're going to talk about personality disorders. When traits of your personality show an enduring pattern of experience and behavior that deviates from expectations of our typical culture. And to be a disorder, that means that it is pervasive. It sticks over time and it can often lead to distress or impairment, which is what makes it a disorder. And a lot of times it doesn't appear to be a disorder to the person experiencing it, but it causes a strain on their relationships. It's often seen as inflexible traits. You can kind of think of it as fixed as in a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset usually those with personality disorders it is extremely hard to treat and it is very complex but there is still things that can be done with therapy and understanding how other people are different than yourself and we're going to talk about what those personality disorders are i think the average person without a personality disorder might be able to see traits of each one that sounds kind of familiar. It might also remind you of someone in your life, but the purpose isn't to provide a diagnosis for you. It is not meant so that you can self-diagnose yourself, but it is meant to be educational. And if you or someone in your life, you think that they meet the criteria, maybe you can encourage them to see a therapist or a psychologist or a psychiatrist to have their diagnosis and perhaps seek help and support for it. 
it is actually estimated that 15% of the U.S. population, adults only, have at least one personality disorder. So what I'm going to be discussing, that's about a little bit between one in seven or one in six people have one of these disorders. And of course, like a lot of things, there are different severities to each disorder. I'm going to be talking about the criteria and for a few of them, it's something like having four or more of listed criteria and some people might have that minimum four and some people might have seven or eight. There's always a spectrum with that and a lot of people might meet the criteria and be perfectly functional their whole life. They do have this underlining, pervasive, inflexible area to their personality, but it doesn't mean that they're any less of a person. I'm gonna be talking about three clusters that we group personality disorders into, and when I say we, I really just mean the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, also known as the DSM, which is what psychiatry and psychology uses to make these diagnoses. So just for a rough overview, I'm just going to name each of the clusters and each of the personality disorders, just so you get an idea of where we're going, and I'm sure you may have heard about some of these. The first one is cluster A, and these are paranoid personality disorder, schizoid personality disorder, and schizotypal personality disorder. Cluster B, and these include antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, and narcissistic personality disorder. Lastly, cluster C, and these include avoidant personality disorder, dependent personality disorder, and obsessive compulsive personality disorder. And again, to be diagnosed with a personality disorder, it has to be an enduring pattern of experience and behavior that differs from what is expected of our culture. And it often is manifested in cognition, which is the way of perceiving yourself, other people, and events. It can also affect the range, intensity, and appropriateness of emotional responses. Additionally, it might manifest as interpersonal functioning, so how you're able to relate with others in a social setting. And then lastly, it can affect impulse control, which basically means your ability to have good judgment and make decisions and not lash out or have an extreme emotional response. Also, this pattern has to be inflexible. You don't change, it's part of who you are, it's your personality, and it has to be pervasive across a broad range of situations, both personal and social. So it's not just that you're this way just with your family and then when you go out with friends, you're not like this anymore. It has to be everywhere, school, work, home, everywhere. And this pattern leads to distress or an impairment in any sort of functioning. The pattern has to be stable and long duration. And its onset can often be traced to adolescence or early adulthood. To diagnose a personality disorder in adolescence or childhood, criteria must be met for at least a year due to 
adolescents and children trying to find their identity a lot of times their personalities change a lot during this time of life an exception to this is antisocial personality disorder that we will talk about a little bit later which can only be diagnosed in individuals older than 18 years old the enduring pattern also cannot be better explained by any sort of mental disorder. So there's a few that sound a little bit like schizophrenia. There's also quite a few that sound like generalized anxiety disorder. So these are things that they're always part of your personality and it's just more pervasive. It, it's part of your personality and how you interact with others. Even though these diagnoses like schizophrenia and anxiety can affect how you interact with others, it's just that this personality disorder is not part of that. It is always there. Additionally, this pattern will not be diagnosed if it can be attributed to the effects of a substance. So this is pretty straightforward. If you are using a drug of abuse and then you meet these criteria, doesn't mean you have the personality disorder. It means you're under the influence of something else that is causing that. And just a clarification, I said that these personality disorders often by definition differ from what is expected out of the culture and you can kind of see how this might cause some issues because there's a lot of variations among different cultures with the expression of habits, customs, religious and political values. So it's really important to put the patient in context to whatever culture they ascribe to. So if you have someone that's part of the immigrant population, you're going to have to put their culture in perspective with this. As we go on, I'm going to mention also gender-related discrepancies. There's a few that are more common in men and others that are more common in women. And it might be just because of gender-based stereotypes that they are easier to diagnose and it might show up a little bit different in the opposite sex that it is less prevalent in. Okay, first we're starting with cluster A. Cluster A is overall known as the odd or eccentric cluster. These people have problems with interpersonal relationships, usually due to either mistrust or lack of interest in others. They also have profound functional impairment across their lifespan and across all domains of life usually. They tend to live isolated lives and appear introverted to others. Their professional functioning is often limited to a job they can hold with limited interaction with others. Starting with the first one, paranoid personality disorder. This one is pretty easy to understand, I think. I'm sure you've heard about people using the word paranoid just to describe someone that has distrust or they're suspicious of others, and that's exactly what we see in people with paranoid personality disorder. That is the underlining requirement before looking at the other criteria is that pervasive distrust and suspiciousness of others. And it's specifically of the motives of others and people with paranoid personality disorder see those motives as malevolent. So out to get them, evil, not good. Not like they think that people are going to throw them a surprise party. Someone is out to get them. People with paranoid personality disorder are often touchy and guarded in hypervigilance to a potential threat. It's estimated that 3% of the general population have paranoid personality disorder and the disorder is also more common in men. 
They often perceive an offer of help to be criticism that they can't do well on their own, and they try to be very self-sufficient. They're also more likely to have alcohol and substance use disorders. You have to have four or more of the following criteria, and there's seven, so count with me. One is you can suspect that other people are exploiting, harming, or deceiving you. Two is that you are preoccupied with doubts that are unjustified about the trustworthiness of others. Three is that you're reluctant to confide in others because you're afraid that that information will be used against you. Four is you can see very much neutral remarks or events, even positive remarks or events, and you read into it and you find hidden meanings to it. Five is bearing grudges, being unforgiving to any kind of insult or injury or slights that come across you. Six is perceiving that others are attacking your character or your reputation and that this perception is not apparent to others and also quickly react through anger or a counterattack. Seven is recurrent suspicions without justification about the infidelity of a partner. So this one is just a more specific uh, paranoia. So you need to have four out of those seven. And of course, this paranoia is often present in other diagnoses such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or even depressive disorder with psychotic features. So if you have any of those, then you would have those diagnoses and not paranoid personality disorder. The next one is schizoid personality disorder. And this is based off of a pervasive pattern of detachment from social relationships, paired with a restricted range of emotional expression. They're often isolated and detached Many of them have fantasy worlds, often through video games, that replaces reality for them. And schizoid personality disorder is estimated to affect 4% of the general population. It's both more common and more severe in men. It is not my intention to poke fun at personality disorders, but a good way to kind of understand what schizoid personality disorder looks like is to imagine Squidward from Spongebob Squarepants and what his ideal world would be. So this is actually the personality disorder that is often colloquially referred to as antisocial. But we're going to talk about antisocial and that's something very different. Schizoid is the one that involves someone that would be, that might be referred to as a loner. Someone who enjoys being alone, they're a lone wolf, they are completely fine with it, they're not longing for any social interaction, they really just don't need it. They're fine just being by themselves. And some of these people can be the amazingly creative artists or they can be someone that is a brilliant writer or inventor. There's a lot of speculation with a lot of our historical figures that they might have had this personality disorder. For example, Albert Einstein. You can imagine that if you have no need for social interaction, you have a lot of time to yourself and you can get a lot out of that. 
is it healthy to not have social interaction? I don't really know, but I imagine that the reason why for a lot of us that don't have this personality disorder, when we go without social interaction that impairs us and that's unhealthy for us because we need some of that. But these people, they don't really, they don't really feel that subjective need for social interaction. I can't really say that it's unhealthy for them if that's what they're choosing to do and they don't really see a need for that social interaction. So it's a very interesting disorder. Like paranoid personality disorder, you will need four of the seven symptoms. So you can count with me again. One, and I think I'm repeating myself about a little bit. I kind of got ahead of myself, but hopefully this clears it up what is actually required. So one, they neither desire nor enjoy close relationships, including their family. So they don't desire or enjoy close relationships. Two, almost always choosing solitary activities. So they prefer to be by themselves doing whatever they do. They're still involved in activities, they just prefer to do it by themselves. Three, little if any interest in sexual experiences. So if they're not going to enjoy close relationships, they're probably not interested in sex too. That's one that the DSM chooses to separate. Four, takes pleasure in few if any activities. Five, lacks close friends other than first degree relatives. So this one kind of pairs with the first one, but this is saying that some people with schizoid personality disorder do have close relationships, but usually with family members, and they really don't have that need for a friend role. So if they need social interaction, they can get it enough from family members. Number six appears indifferent to the praise or criticism of others. And this one is really interesting because not only can they function by their own, but they don't care what people think of them. And seven, shows emotional coldness or detachment. So it kind of goes along with the other ones. They're, they're choosing to be alone. They typically don't have close social relationships and they don't care what people think of them, so they're often also emotionally cold, and they don't have as much use for social relationships as other people do. And again, this isn't going to occur in diagnoses like schizophrenia and depressive disorder, which both have this kind of flattened affect, which just means that there is little showcasing of emotions, and they often appear sad because of that. But it's really in this instance, it's more of a cold emotion than sad. Number three, schizotypal personality disorder. This sounds a lot like schizophrenia and you're gonna see that some of the characteristics may overlap, but this is a distinct entity. So in schizotypal personality disorder, you'll see a pattern of deficits that occur with discomfort or reduced capacity for having close relationships. So a lot of times I see schizotypal being referred to as awkward. These people are socially awkward and they often have eccentric behavior and perceptual distortions, which means that they just think a little bit differently. It's estimated that schizotypal personality disorder is 
prevalent in 1% of the general population. It may be slightly more common in men. They often have speech that is difficult to follow for other people. They may appear inattentive to usual social conventions, such as avoiding eye contact, and more than half of them will have at least one episode of major depressive disorder over their lifetime. Some famous people that have been thought to be schizotypal include Vincent van Gogh and Emily Dickinson. For this one, you're gonna need at least five of the following nine symptoms. So one, is ideas of reference. And ideas of reference is present in schizophrenia often. Ideas of reference involves reading into events and circumstances and interpreting them as a sign that is directed towards them and is often related to what they perceive as magical powers, like they might take a circumstance to mean that their magic is working even though it's coincidence. And number two is odd beliefs or magical thinking that influences behavior. This includes being superstitious, thinking that you're telepathic, thinking that you have some sort of sixth sense, or having bizarre fantasies or preoccupations. And I think a lot of people have have this to an extent, like if you're into horoscopes or um, you believe in magic or you kind of have more spiritual beliefs that other people in whatever culture you ascribe to wouldn't share with you, but Again, this is only one of the five that you would need, so keep that in mind. And also, it has to influence your behavior and be inconsistent with cultural norms. And I would probably argue something like horoscopes might be part of at least American culture. Number three is unusual perceptual experiences. So this includes illusions and specifically bodily illusions. So illusions means that you see something that other people can see, but you see it a little bit differently. I think like the easiest way to understand this is when you're laying in bed at night and there is a piece of clothing hanging on a chair and you see it and the first time you see it, you could have sworn you saw some sort of monster. That's kind of kind of what we're talking about here, but you know, it's not just one second you think it's this. Illusions is more like you keep staring at it and that's all you see. You just see something else than what it really is. And with bodily illusions, you could look down at your arm and see maybe it's it's a tree branch instead. That's just an example and it, of course it varies so much between people. Number four is added thinking and speech. So these are just, this can include so many different patterns of speech that are often also seen in schizophrenia. Could have just super vague speak that you can't really provide any details, you just speak in general. You can have circumstantial speak, which means that when someone asks you a question, you go off kind of on tangents and you tell all these stories 
and then five minutes later you finally come back and say yes I had coffee this morning. Metaphorical which means um, you often speak in terms of metaphor and you never have anything to say that can strictly be taken literal. You can be over elaborate which means that you speak with super flowy language and takes you a lot longer to say what you mean. Number five is suspiciousness or paranoid ideation. So again, this is some overlap with paranoid personality disorder. Number six is inappropriate or constricted affect. And affect is referring to kind of what others would perceive as your mood. So inappropriate would mean that you're saying how much of a bad day you've had and how sad you are and how disappointed you are but you're speaking as if you just won the lottery so it doesn't really match with what you're saying your mood is like you might seem happy when what you're saying a person without the personality disorder would be acting a little bit more sad constricted affect would mean that you're always neutral and you don't really show too much emotion even though you could be talking about how you're feeling, your body language and your facial expressions aren't showing that. Number seven, behavior or appearance that is odd, eccentric, or peculiar. Appearance might be something like wearing an oversized winter jacket in the middle of summer. So it's just something that normally in the culture it wouldn't be expected of you. Number eight is lack of close friends other than first degree relatives, so your family members. And this one is different from schizoid because often these people with schizotypal personality disorder want to have close friends. They have that desire, but they're often, like some of the things I mentioned, you can kind of picture how they would be acting and a lot of people might be turned off by that and wouldn't want to be friends with someone who acted like that. Once you get to adulthood and start trying to hold a job and start dating, you can see how this can cause some issues. But the difference is they want to have that interaction. It's just because of their awkwardness, it's sometimes hard for them to achieve that. Number nine is excessive social anxiety that doesn't diminish with familiarity and tends to be associated with paranoid fears rather than negative judgments. So there's two parts here. One is social anxiety, which if you have social anxiety, that doesn't mean that you meet the criteria for schizotypal because you still need those four other points. But it's saying that they grow weary around other people, even if they know them very well. And a lot of times this coincides with their paranoia that other people are not being honest, they're distrusting other people, rather than what you might assume, which happens a lot in social anxiety, where people don't want to be judged by other people and want other people to like them and don't want to make a mistake. You don't see that as much here in schizotypal. Those are the cluster A personality disorders. Look out for part two to hear more about cluster B and cluster C. See you then. Thank you so much for listening. Again, I'm on Instagram at First Line Podcast. Also on Facebook, facebook.com slash First Line Podcast. You can reach out for any questions, 
comments, suggestions, feedback. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again.